Father God, just prepare our hearts for your word. Let my words be your words. Let them be words that revive, that refresh, that renew us, and remind us of who you are. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Previously on Hosea Vision, we've heard the story of a faithful husband named Hosea who went way beyond the call of duty in reconciling with an extremely unfaithful wife. We've seen God compare his beloved people Israel to that wife. For after rescuing Israel from slavery and establishing them in a land of flowing with milk and honey. They too went after other lovers and forgot him. And they committed idolatry, what Hosea would call adultery with idols. They played the whore. And in their stubborn refusal to know him, God even renamed their children with monikers like, Not My People and no mercy, and even promised to bless them with non-refundable tickets to a place called Jezreel, otherwise known as the Valley of Destruction. And that was just the first four chapters. So by the time we get to Hosea chapter 5, the picture is already pretty bleak, and it's only about to get worse. Listen to some of God's pronouncements against them in chapter 5. This is a review of last week. I'll just read through portions of chapter 5. Just hear what's going on here. Pay attention, O house of Israel, for the judgment is for you. I will discipline all of them. You have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return. They know not the Lord. Israel shall stumble in his guilt. They will not find the Lord. He has withdrawn from them. The new moon shall devour them. Sound the alarm. Ephraim shall become a desolation. I will pour out my wrath like water. He is oppressed crushed in judgment. But I, God, am like a moth to Ephraim and like dry rot to the house of Judah. Assyria is not able to cure you. I will be like a lion to Ephraim. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue And that's through verse 14. In short, Israel doomed themselves. Their persistent unfaithfulness had led them to a well-deserved punishment, that of their own end. After centuries of whoring, God finally did the inevitable. He destroyed them as a nation. And as we've listened to this epic tragedy, we too have been shaken to the core 
For if we're honest, we too have been unfaithful to our God. We too have gone after other loves. We too have invited God's wrath. So what is to become of us? Are we also doomed? Will we ever be freed from our own tendencies to be unfaithful and play the whore against our God? Our text this morning will provide an unexpected yet remarkable answer. Listen for it as we read together the next seven verses from Hosea beginning in chapter 5, verse 15 in the ESV, English Standard Version. I, this is God speaking, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. Come, let us return to the Lord for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. And then back to God speaking. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And my judgment goes forth as a light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Okay, we're going to examine this, pack, this passage from Hosea, these seven verses, under two different viewpoints, two different headings this morning. First, we'll look at it, we'll look at what God has done. And then we'll review what we must do. What God has done, number one, what we must do, number two. So first, what God has done. I'll summarize it this way. He has done an unexpected reversal. As we've seen through chapter 5, God's words towards Israel have grown progressively harsher. Where he initially just withdrew from them, in verse 6, he eventually promises to eat away their livelihood like moth and dry rot. That's in verse 12, chapter 5. And finally, when we get to verse 14, he says he'll pounce on them like a lion, like a young lion, tear them up, carry them off, and none will rescue. So what has God done? Number one, he has killed. 
In short, by the end of verse 14, in chapter 5 of Hosea, Israel is dead. She has been killed by the ferocious attack of a lion. She's not mostly dead. She's all dead. We know this from what follows in verses like chapter 6, verse 5 that we just read, where God clearly declares that I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and I have hewn them by the prophets. And that word hewn here has the idea of being hacked to pieces so that none can put back together. That's kind of all dead. And we know from elsewhere in Scripture that this is exactly what happened to Israel and Judah. And after said destruction was thoroughly accomplished, Jeremiah, who wrote about this destruction also, he summarized the disaster at the very end of his book, and he actually refers to Hosea's words here. Let's look at them quickly. Jeremiah 50:17. This is after the death of Israel and Judah. He describes it this way: Israel is a hunted sheep driven away by lions. He uses the lions metaphor. First, the king of Assyria devoured him, and now, at last, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has gnawed his bones. So Israel was effectively dead. And what Hosea described originally as the very wife of God has been killed and carried away with none to rescue. But that was not the end of the story. Immediately after tearing Israel to pieces, God did something unexpected. It's right there in verse 15. Look at it. God said to himself, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. Now in verse 14, remember, he described himself as a lion attacking and tearing his prey. But in verse 15, after pouncing upon them, he does something normal lions would never do. He returns to his place, empty-handed. Real lions would not, not do that. Once they've killed their prey, they would guard their bounty, they'd invite their family, and they'd confirm dinner reservations for the next week. They would ensure that the dead stayed dead and that their bellies would be well fed. But God doesn't do that. Unlike a typical lion, he returns to his lair empty-handed. And he waits for something, something unexpected. He waits for the very ones whom he has killed to return to him, acknowledge their guilt, and seek his face. That's what verse 15 says. And then the very next verse Chapter 6, verse 1 actually confirms it and says, says it a little differently. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. Now, how nonsensical is that? 
How can the very ones whom he has just killed return to him and get healed by him? Dead people cannot do that. But that's where the singular most important verse in the book of Hosea comes into play. The very next verse, Hosea chapter 6, verse 2. Let's reread this one very carefully. For it is the key verse, the verse that makes sense of everything and links what Hosea had to say back them, back then to them. It links it to what God says to his people today. And it reads like this. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. There it is. That's how God can return to his place and wait for the dead ones to return to him. He can do that because he has raised. He has revived. He's raised up. He has granted life to the very ones he killed. That's something very unexpected. But to whom was Hosea referring in verse 2? Was he talking about Israel and Judah? Well, he certainly was talking to Israel and Judah. He was a prophet to them. And he's warning, he, he wrote this book and warning them of their impending destruction and judgment. And he also wrote this promise of resurrection to them. Yes, he wrote to them. Was he writing about them? Because in a sense, the nation of Israel actually was raised up again after it got killed by Nebuchadnezzar in Assyria. You can read about it, that resurrection in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah where there's a story of the Jewish exiles returning to the promised land and rebuilding their temple and rebuilding the city walls. But it happened after nearly 70 years of exile. 70 years in a foreign land. So something about that particular resurrection doesn't quite square with this verse. Because you have to admit that 70 years... It's a bit stretching that three-day interval mentioned in verse 2. And furthermore, this resurrected Israel never really recovered their national autonomy. They never had a king, another king. They, they were actually subject to foreign powers like Persia and Rome for centuries. And they managed to find themselves again on the receiving end of God's judgment after they rejected the one king he did send their way the Messiah. No, Hosea had to be talking about someone else. He had to be referring to a second Israel. An Israel who, like the first Israel, was called out of Egypt while still a child. A second Israel whom, like the first Israel, spent 40 units of time in the wilderness but who, unlike the first Israel, overcame every temptation and did not grumble or complain or sin. 
But even more significantly, the second Israel, just like the first Israel, had to be killed by God himself. Yet unlike the first Israel, he was raised on the third day to live forevermore. You know who this second Israel is, don't you? His name is Jesus. The one whose story is spoken of and alluded to throughout all the scriptures. Even here in Hosea. Yes, the one whom God raised on the third day here was the Christ himself. But wait a minute. Hosea 6.2 does not speak in the singular. It says he will revive us. He will raise us up. It's plural. How can Hosea be talking about singular Jesus and still use the plural us? Did he mishear God when he penned this? Did he have his hearing aid turned down too low? I don't think so. And neither do the New Testament writers. The Apostle Paul, in particular, knew why Hosea got the plural us right. Take a look at what Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians. Chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Just listen to this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So according to Paul, those who are in Christ were chosen to be in him before the foundation of the world. They were chosen before they even came to be. And where were they chosen to be? In him, in Christ. And let's go on to chapter 2, verse 4 through 6. Carry on this idea of these chosen ones in Christ. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us, alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus notice who was raised up with Christ a group of people called us and what was so special about these us's they were chosen to be in Christ before the foundation of the world. The same ones chosen to be in him beforehand were made alive with him and raised with him and even made to sit with him in the heavenly places. So when Hosea declared that he will raise us up that we may live before him he wasn't mishearing the Spirit of God. He was getting it exactly right. But there's another stunning implication from this connection with Jesus and us. Before God can raise us up, he must first strike us down. He must first kill us. 
the striking down of sinners and transgressors, like Hosea describes, like Israel and Judah, makes a lot of sense. But Jesus isn't like them. Striking down an innocent one does not make sense. You see, Jesus was not a sinner. He did nothing wrong. He did not deserve to be killed by God. In fact, he perfectly obeyed God. So why was he struck down? Why did he have to die so violently as described here in Hosea? To answer that question, the answer to that question actually lies with us. You see, according to what we just read in Ephesians, those who were chosen to be in Christ before the foundation of the world happen to be dead in their transgressions and sins from the moment of their birth. They were, as Hosea would say, unfaithful to God from the very beginning. They consistently went after other lovers. Yes, they too persistently played the whore. And yet God chose these unfaithful ones to be in Christ even before they came to be, so that their unfaithfulness became Christ's unfaithfulness. Their sins became his sins, and their deplorable hatred of God became his too. You see, when God struck Jesus down, he was pouring out his wrath upon the sin of everyone who was in him. He was killing their unfaithfulness. And in so doing, he enacted an unexpected reversal. Those who were objects of his wrath suddenly became objects of his mercy. The ones whom he had to kill became the ones he raised. Or as Hosea would say, they became my people. But to what end? What was God expecting of this newly raised group of people? His people. Well, that brings us to our second heading. What we must do. And I'll summarize what we must do with the words, an expected return. Now that God has done the unexpected, what must we do in response? Let's reread verse 1. It says it right there. Come, let us return to the Lord. God expects those whom he has torn to return to him, that he may heal them. Or said another way, in the same verse actually, God expects those whom he has struck down to return so he can bind them up. When you think about it, he's actually not asking for much. He just wants us to seek him out, especially when our lives are torn, especially when we've been struck to the ground. Look back at verse 15 of chapter 5. God has returned to his place after doing all the hard work of killing and then raising and what's he doing back at his place? He's patiently waiting for his people to return to him. He's waiting 
for them to acknowledge their guilt and seek his face. He's waiting for them to earnestly seek him, especially in their time of distress. He's not expecting them to return all tidy and cleaned up. Rather, he knows they're distressed and guilt-ridden, and he's expecting them to return that way anyway. But what should we, if we are among the ones to return to him, what should we be looking for when we return to him? Should we be seeking healing? That's a good thing to be seeking, sure. Should we be seeking his forgiveness? Yeah, I I think we need that. Should we be seeking relief from our distress? Sure. But that's not what he wants us to seek first and foremost. Look at verse 515 again. Until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. And then again, and in their distress, earnestly seek me. God expects those who return to him to seek him first and foremost. And how do we seek him first and foremost? Well, this text is going to show us a couple of ways. Look in verse 3, chapter 6, verse 3. It's, it's another command here. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. So there it is. How do we seek God? We seek him by seeking to know him. Not just to know of him or to know about him. Not just to know all the facts and all the truth about him, as helpful as that certainly is but to know him personally, to know him intimately, or in keeping with Hosea's metaphor, to know him like a husband seeks to know his wife, or a wife her husband. God expects us to diligently seek to know him. He expects us to earnestly look for this kind of relationship with him. And he wants us to keep on seeking him, to keep pressing into this kind of knowledge of him. But that's not all. God also desires for us to love him. Look at verse 6, the last one that we read. Note that this is God speaking once again, and he's speaking in the very clearest of terms. What does he say? I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Notice that. According to this verse, there are two things God most desires from his people. One is the knowledge of God, which we just talked about. That's knowing him. The other is something called steadfast love. I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. This love isn't just plain old love. It's got the word steadfast in front of it. So you could think of it this way. It's love that is steadfast. It's love that persists. 
It's love that doesn't stop loving. Now, normally the Old Testament writers attribute this kind of love to God. We read about it all throughout the Psalms and Proverbs. God's steadfast love towards His people is celebrated with well-known stanzas like, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. But here, God Himself turns that around. Rather than talk of His steadfast love towards us, He tells His people that He expects them to have steadfast love towards Him. He wants them to love Him and keep on loving Him steadfastly. And He even provides an illustration to help us understand what He means. Look back in verse 4. Now in verses 4, 5, and 6, God actually returns to His lament of Ephraim and Judah and their unfaithfulness. But while He says it, He describes this of them. He says of Ephraim and Judah, your love is like a morning cloud. Your love, notice, your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Have you ever noticed how long the dew hangs around here in the desert? It rarely shows at all. And when it does, it doesn't stay around very long. It evaporates early, way before many of us have even left the house to start the day. The same can be said of the morning clouds. They tend to disappear shortly after the sun rises, erasing any possibility of rain here in the Valley of the Sun. That is what non-steadfast love looks like. It doesn't last. It is here for a second and then gone, even before we can say good morning. And that's often what our love towards God looks like. We show that initial tinge of excitement, that momentary affection towards Him, and what amounts to only a passing thought of our loving God and Savior as He calls our name. But then we quickly transfer our attention to something else, to some other vapid love. That is not steadfast love. That is desert dew. That is not what God wants from us. God wants us to want Him, to want to be with Him, to want to be where He is. But left to our own devices, we do the do. Thankfully, God has not left His people to their own devices. Let's remember what He has done. He has killed the sins of His people through Christ's death. He has raised His people through Christ's resurrection. And He's given His people living water. Living water. Now, I haven't mentioned that one yet, but that's in the text too. We've actually already read it, but let's read it again. Verse 3. God's going out is as sure as the dawn. Morning time. Remember? Same metaphor going on, except his is different. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. There it is. 
The water comes from heaven, straight from God himself. And you contrast that with what we read in verse 5, where our love goes away like the desert do. God once again comes to our rescue. He showers us with the water that we don't have. He saturates us with spring rain. He fills our water jugs to overflowing and then some. And Jesus said it similarly. Look at how Jesus said it in John chapter 7, verse 38. He said, whoever believes in me, Jesus, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And it's these rivers of living water from the indwelling Holy Spirit that rejuvenate our desire for God, that rekindle our love for Him, and give us everything we need to return to Him. So we're without excuse. Let's make a habit of it. Let's cultivate our love for God and return to Him every day, as often as He comes to mind. When you wake in the morning and your anxious thoughts start to suffocate you, return to Him. As you go through your day and your best laid plans flounder in frustration and you're tempted to anger, return to Him. When temptations arise and draw your focus to perverse things online or around you, return to Him. And most especially, every time you stumble and get ensnared in habitual sin, return to Him. Remember, God desires your steadfast love more than your sacrifice. He wants you to seek to know Him as you bring your offering, not just go through the motions. He wants us to want Him more than anything else. He wants to be our first love, our steadfast love. For the one who has killed us and killed our sin in Christ has also raised us and given us everything we need to know Him and to love Him. So let's do it. Let's all return to Him. Father God, we are so grateful that You have enabled us to return to You. Your desire is for us to desire You. And You've given us everything. Everything we need to return to You. Every day, every moment of every day. Lord God, kindle our desire for you. Kindle our desire to want to go back to you and know you more intimately and to love you more steadfastly. And if we haven't, if any of us haven't had this desire to ever go to God before, ever go to you before, Lord God, stir that desire. Raise them up by the power of your Holy Spirit. Let them want to go to you for the first time, perhaps in their lives. We ask this in Christ's name.
Amen.